Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 269 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed. And unfortunately, producer Jeremy could not be here with us because we are doing a tri-continental record right now. Um, because, of course, we are so excited to be joined once again by uh, Yevgeny Morozov, who, you know, the, the patron saint of TMK, I would say, but also the uh, the creator and host of the new podcast series this uh, series the santiago boys which is just uh, a, a, a really fantastic interesting and deeply researched nine-part series about the kind of the history of cyber sin um but also about so much more the legacy of the the people and the ideas um that are you know Part of this this case study that I think has gotten a lot of attention um, over the last few years, especially as leftists look towards, is it possible for technologies and information technologies to contribute to um, better societies, socialist societies, rather than neoliberal ones? And, and of course, Cybersyn is always coming up as an example. But as we'll get into with Yevgeny, it's such a more complicated and thus more fascinating story. But Guinea, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, sure. Um, it's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, so I guess let's do start with a little bit of a potted history of Cybersyn as as a, a kind of historical case study, as an object of study, um, before we can get into the, the kind of much bigger, broader, more complicated aspects of it. But could you just kind of lay out for us, for in case listeners are not aware, what, what is CyberSyn or what was CyberSyn? Sure. So the short elevator pitch version of the answer would be that it was essentially a system for helping uh, Chilean technocrats to manage uh, state-owned or state-run enterprises that were growing in number because of nationalizations that happened under Salvador Allende's uh, leftist administration in the early 1970s. Um, it was a system that sought to leverage the power of computers uh, and the telex network uh, that was already existed to some extent in Chile, but was greatly enhanced uh, during the project's duration uh, in order to manage the Chilean state-run industry better. Um, and to do it possibly and potentially with some involvement of the workers at various stages of the project and to do it in a way that would allow to preserve some stability in a country that, because of interventions of the CIA and big multinational companies uh, that didn't like Allende at all, was increasingly unstable. Uh, so this is the short version. The actual story was much more complicated because, as with most technological systems and projects, um, there was no big template uh, from the very beginning. Right? It's not as if these people sought out to build cyber scene. It's not like building a bridge where you build, <laughs> bring in a bunch of companies and they bid and then it gets built. It was much more open-ended and ambiguous, and they didn't have a name, cyber scene, until very you know, late into the project. So, but it came about, we know through that name and uh, we tend to read 
its logic that you know pops up towards the end of the project into its origins but the origins actually were a little bit more ambiguous and a little bit more open-ended let's put it this way it was really interesting going through the series especially as you start kind of like situating it and immediately in the geopolitical you know web that Allende um, found himself in in attempts to nationalize various industries attempts uh, by multinational firms connected to the CIA or connected to uh, certain geostrategic imperatives in the U.S. to deny Allende or interfere with the political system in Chile, uh, to deny uh, them a chance at technological sovereignty and and nationalization. Um, And I think that, you know, that is in a contrast with, I think, a lot of the narratives that how they usually will kind of start where there's an immediate sort of reminiscing about like something that was lost without getting into the necessity of, of why that might have been something they pursued and how that transformed along the way. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what sparked that or with them or in, and also your interest with it in that direction. No, I think it's, it's very important to understand that in my reading of CyberSyn, uh, it was by and large almost a reactive system not reactionary, but reactive, and that the situation in the Chilean economy was getting increasingly out of control. Uh, They didn't have enough uh, talented managers inside this leftist coalition that Allende represented, the coalition of six parties, but they were bringing more and more enterprises, some of them taken over from foreign owners, some of them from local ones, some of them big, some of them small, they're bringing them under the state umbrella. And they were all ending up in this state agency called Corfo. And that agency was tasked with running hundreds of enterprises. And uh, you can imagine that it's a task that even today was all of our complicated enterprise planning systems and big data and algorithms would be a humongous task for anybody to handle. And here we were with a lot of young people in their late 20s who were occupying these middle layers of technocracy in Chile who were tasked with essentially running these companies. All of that was happening, as I've mentioned, against this background where the United States was doing everything to make it as hard as possible for them to actually run the economy because they wanted, the United States wanted uh, the Allende regime to fall. And we can talk about why, but they were essentially trying to do everything to create an economic crisis so that the Chilean military would intervene early on. And first they wanted the military to intervene to prevent Allende from even taking office. And then they thought that they would intervene by, you know, reacting to this uh, cool climate um, that uh, the U.S. was stimulating. And that involved offering incentives to managers to leave and go away and abroad from the country. That uh, involved targeting American companies to stop them from supplying spare parts and components and you know basic assistance to the equipment that the Chilean economy relied upon. Uh, it involved you know, spying and eavesdropping on communications of managers and including IEM than his uh, politicians. So the campaign was very comprehensive, and we have to understand that against that background, cyber scene was like a way to introduce some stability 
artificially into a system that was also being made unstable <laughs> through <laughs> also artificial means. So I saw it very much as a battle of, on the one hand, this deliberate effort to destabilize the situation uh, by creating chaos, and on the other hand, this efforts of Chilean technocrats abetted by this British consultant to create some stability by trying to deploy management and cybernetics and technology and networks and telexes to somehow stay a few steps ahead of those who are planning to make the situation unstable. But I think the geopolitical context is very important to understand because it wasn't just that the American companies were being nationalized in Chile. It was also that Allende was elected democratically. I mean, the Chilean electoral system at the time was very complicated. Uh, he was elected by plurality and not by majority, but nonetheless, that's how all other, most of the other Chilean presidents uh, have been elected in the past. So ultimately, what the United States feared was that if socialism, and Allende was a socialist, even though the coalition included five other parties in addition to the socialist one, if Allende reached um, presidency through democratic means, the same processes could encourage people in France or in Italy, which had sizable communist and socialist parties, to essentially do the same. So Chile, even though its economy wasn't that big, uh, proved, well, found itself in the middle of this Cold War um, geopolitical battles, and eventually the amount of time and effort and money and resources that America dedicated on sitting Allende was probably completely disproportional with the threat that Chile represented to the U.S. Uh, in the context of the Cold War, that threat, of course, became much bigger. Yeah, and just to really situate this, uh, like, you know, historically, Allende was elected in 1970, right? And so this is really the the peak of uh, American uh, kind of McCarthyism at home, but American, you know, stymie the, the the surge or the flow of socialism and communism everywhere around the world, right? If, whether that's in Vietnam or Chile or where, wherever in between, it is, yeah. They like investing so much time and resources um, into a, a you know a, a relatively small South American country, um, but it's also like you know America. No, no amount of time or resources was was too small or too great um, to stop uh, anybody. The domino effect of socialism in Latin America or Southeast Asia or wherever it might be. So I think that's the kind of broader geopolitical context as well. I mean, you know, you talk about. Uh, you know, a character here that I know will um, kind of be recurring and I want to get deeper into later in the conversation, but ITT, the International Telephone and Telegraph Company, right? This kind of, you know, you talk about it as this forgotten tech giant and we can get more into that later, the kind of legacy of ITT, but uh, also playing a really huge role here in terms of trying to lobby the American government and the CIA in particular to um, prevent Allende from being elected. And then once that happens, still funneling money and resources into um, sabotaging Allende here uh, in Chile and uh, under the threats of, you know, nationalization of this um, massive global telecommunication network um, within Chile. 
And so there is all already from the beginning a lot of both kind of American hegemonic and cap you know, uh, uh, power at play, but also um, American capitalist and international capitalist power at play here as well. So Chile being the kind of caught in the middle of a lot of countervailing right-wing forces. Sure. But uh, I'm I'm sure we'll get to ITT, but I think, again, to situate the whole Allende project a little bit um, deeper and and more historically, I think we need to understand that it was at the level of technocracy and at the level of the kind of managerial capacity um, and ideas about economic development and industrial strategy and all the things that we now have rediscovered, you know, 50 years later, uh, it was a pretty sophisticated operation. Uh, Chile was lucky to be, uh, Santiago was lucky to have um, the headquarters of the main, the office of the so-called CEPAL, uh, which is the Commission, United Nations Office, essentially, or ACLA, it's the, in, in the English abbreviation, that's the United Nations Commission for Latin America, Economic Commission for the Latin America and the Caribbean, which at the time was a hotbed of radical thinking about how to basically well, industrialize in a way that wouldn't also depend dependencies on uh, existing uh, hegemons in the world economy. And right, so those were very bright economists from Brazil, from Argentina, from Chile, who were really, and with lots of arguments between themselves, but who were actually essentially thinking about how it is that these countries of Latin America and the Caribbean can um, lessen their dependence on intellectual property rights, on technologies, on expertise that's coming from the global north while developing their own. And as part of lessening that and uh, decreasing that dependency, of course, the idea was that you need to build your own tech industry. So Allende had this plan to build a semiconductors plan, for example, in the north of the country and actually laid the ground for it in the early 1970s. They wanted to build their own telecommunications um, company to rival uh, the local uh, subsidiary of ITT. They wanted to build a national computing company. Some of it happens even before I ended. There is a consensus in the country, even already in the 1960s, that that needs to be done. And if you look at cyber scenes through that lens, it becomes much more radical because it was essentially a managerial system that once inserted into this radical economic project of building uh, a robust, technologically sophisticated, technologically autonomous economy in Latin America with a democratically elected socialist president and with an advanced management system that leveraged computers and telex machines to run its economy, it would it may have been a true economic miracle you know way ahead of south korea and japan and whatever you know that happened in the 70s and 80s so in that sense um we have to read cyber scene i guess as part of this broader rethinking of the politics of technology that was happening uh and i and then i would argue that as far as big chunks of the technocrats around Allende were concerned, CyberScene was probably the least important and one of the least important and least known parts of the puzzle. 
it wasn't well advertised. It was confined to this office in Corfo. I mean, projects about developing, you know, semiconductors uh, in uh, in the north, where like it was a massive capital spending effort. It wasn't a tiny thing. It was the same about extending telephone lines. I mean, it was the same. I mean, so the way I'm, and they they had, for example, just to give you another context uh, point. Um, the electoral program of Allende, of the coalition that he represented, Unidad Popular, it had its own telecommunications plan. So they actually went and systematically set what needs to be done, how to involve engineers in decision-making process, how to boost up investment in poor areas. They linked uh, tech questions of technology and questions of ownership of these companies like ITT locally to questions of imperialism. It was far more sophisticated than the technology program you will see from most leftist governments or social democratic governments in Western Europe, North America, or elsewhere today. Right? So in that sense, uh, cyber scene is important, but I think it becomes even more important once you see it as part of this broader transformational agenda that I and they had, and uh, uh, it was an agenda that was very much rooted in questions of autonomy and sovereignty and technological development and industrialization and avoiding dependence. So there was a clear understanding that technology was geopolitical, and whoever controlled it controlled the users. So in the global system, it was mostly American and European companies, by and large American ones, that then dictated the terms to the rest of the globe. So they were far ahead in their analysis of us in 2023, I would argue. Yeah. In, in a scenario where we uh, maybe don't have the same convergence of forces that are destabilizing uh, Chile, you know, do, do you think like these same sort of, do you think the, the move or the look towards some sort of cybernetic management still happens? Or they go down a route of looking towards, you know, like aligning with maybe like the charter and proposals of the new economic or the new international economic order. Like, like is is this sense of technological sovereignty being necessary something that persists even if um, there isn't a constant threat of intervention and artificial destabilization coming from? Uh, external forces and powers. Um. Sure. Well, I think in Chile and in, in vast chunks of Latin America in the 50s and 60s, this consensus was reached outside of the concerns about intervention. So the concerns about intervention and regime change and destabilizing the government has happened in Chile. And, you know, it happened in many other pl smaller places. You know, we, we had coups in uh, Ecuador and Uruguay in, in the early 1970s. I mean, there's been a succession of military coups in Argentina throughout the 60s and early 70s. So uh, the question, of course, depending on which government came to power, uh, the, the stance on technological sovereignty and technological autonomy and and uh, the attention paid to dependency theory, it varied. I mean, and you can look, and various countries and governments showed very different attitudes. So if you look at, for example, the, I mean, sorry, now I'm really going to nerd out here a little bit, but if you look at the, if you look at the original, like originators, if you will, of dependency theory and uh, of kind of structuralism, I mean, it goes by many different names, uh, they were Brazilians, right? So you had uh, a guy called Celso Furtado who had a bureaucratic position in Brazil in the early 60s, then of course, you had uh, Cardozo, who then became the president of Brazil much later on. They were all exiled in, 
well, in Chile for a while at least. I mean, they were exiled in different places afterwards, but they spent time in Chile and they brought this concern about the importance of industrialization, but industrialization done on their own domestic terms. So not on terms imposed from above, but in a way that develops industry, you know, and then carries on all sorts of other additional um, benefits with that literacy, blah, blah, blah. There were all sorts of kind of um, uh, virtuous circles uh, built into it. Uh, in Brazil, there is a coup, of course, in 1964, a military coup that kind of sets the stage for the coup in Chile in 1973. And the result of that coup, many of these radical economists and sociologists end up in, in Chile and in, in, in other places. But if you look at what the Brazilian military does in the next 10, 15, well, 20 years at last, more or less until 1985, um, they actually become, even though they are a right-wing dictatorship that is very close to Washington, that basically does everything to suppress labor, they suppress wages, and it's by suppressing wages that they turn Brazil into an economic miracle. So it does become very attractive to set up shop in Brazil because the wages are so low. They nonetheless exist on this discourse of technology technological sovereignty. So, you know, they promote their own computers, their own software industry. Of course, they build the uh, huge airline. Well, they, they, they start building airplanes, essentially, right? So, I mean, they have a huge embrace of technological sovereignty discourse, even though in the face of it, they're very right-wing military dictatorship, right? So, I wouldn't say that there is necessarily a one-to-one -one, uh, kind of match between being a radical socialist revolutionary who wants to be over, who will be overthrown by the CIA and embracing that discourse. But nonetheless, I would say that Brazil and to some extent Argentina under the military dictatorship, there are more exceptions, uh, uh, right? And clearly when Pinochet comes to power after the coup of 1973 in Chile, um, there is no more sovereignty. So there they really embark on what then becomes known as the neoliberal transformation and which then informs to some extent what happens in the US and the UK. So there they really open up everything. There is no protection given to the industry. They don't care about building semiconductors plants. They just want to concentrate on finance and liberalize everything. And essentially it becomes an extremely financialized economy, right? Where there is no space to think about such matters. So Chile, I would say, would be a much more typical example of a right-wing government walking away from technological sovereignty than, let's say, Brazil. Um, and even in Brazil, with the fall of the military dictatorship, this discourse of, of um, uh, technological sovereignty, ironically, kind of disappears even when Cardozo, you know, the, the arch uh, dependency theorist comes to office and it only resurfaces when Lula comes into office in the early 2000s, even though not particularly strongly. Yeah, I mean, I think drawing these different connections here between these different flavors of thinking about dependency and autonomy as well, because you could say that, you know, Brazil under the right wing military dictatorship was also so concerned with technological autonomy and sovereignty, um, be, but, it, but it was because it was like sovereignty for capital, right? Sovereignty for the right wing elites in power. It's like, hey, we need to protect our own um, capitalist class here in Brazil from the bigger, badder capitalist class uh, elsewhere in, in the U.S., for example. And so I think that's right, though, to kind of, you know, separate some of these ideas. Yes, like technological sovereignty ideas. And I think in, you know, 2023, we are most 
used to hearing these things again in a very kind of left-wing radical kind of flavor, especially thinking about, you know, like Barcelona, I think is a really big case study now of like, are they doing, you know, technological sovereignty, um, in a, in a left-wing socialist kind of way. But, but again, thinking about how these ideas can do not necessarily have a political um, uh, tendency uh, as a, in a kind of integral integral part of them. And, and the kind of case study there of Chile and, and Brazil is a really great example of how um, similar ideas coming from neighboring countries can be uh, implemented in radically different ways and, and for radically different purposes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the points you were making about Cybersyn not even really being the most important uh, part of the broader kind of package of, of investments and reforms that uh, Ch- uh, Allende's government was trying to make in Chile is itself a really interesting and telling one that it is the one that we are all, um, that we all know about and that we all are still talking about. It's the reason we are meeting today, um, despite the fact that it was maybe not the most important thing. And in fact, you know, as we'll get to it, never was even really operational in any uh, meaningful or significant way. Um, and yet it still captures our imagination. And, and I, I mean, I, I think as well, just in a broader sense of cybernetics, the fact that it is linked to cybernetics is why it captures in our imagination, why it is something we continue to talk about Um I would say the opposite, though. I would say that the reason why we're so excited about cybernetics is because we think it's connected to cybersyn. <laughs> but okay, that's my that's my. I mean, I, I just don't think that there is a general. Let me put it that way. I think that the um, kind of the recovery of cybernetics outside of the academe, where you know it comes and goes as an academic subject, the recovery of it in the public domain to some extent, again, intuitively, uh, has to do with the certain image and positive image attached to cybersyn. Because I don't think that there is, I mean, except for a few researchers who really make a lot out of uh, that horse, sorry for my my metaphor, uh, there is really no reason to be talking about cybernetics in 2023, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, So I do think that cybersyn, in a way, indirectly, you know, it's just uh, a second degree of kind of us longing for something. So, you know, we belong for something by projecting these desires on cybersyn. And then I think having done that, we do it once again, but the second degree of projection where we then also projecting certain longing for a comprehensive framework, which will make sense of what's going on. And that framework happens to be uh, cybernetics. So I, I don't think that the traffic goes in the other direction as you were alluding to, but that's just a, that's just a side comment. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. Although I do think a lot of people who still who are talking about cybernetics now are are not even really that aware of cybersyn. But maybe it's just because like mm-hmm. cybersyn, not as an actual material thing, but as a, as like an ideological totem, right? And so mm-hmm. in that regard, you don't even have to really be aware of it for it to still be influencing your interest or your thinking and around reviving cybernetics. I mean. 
I also agree with you that there really is no reason for us to still be talking about it in 2023. I, I just, I, I wrote a review for a book recently in the LA Review of Books um, about cybernetics. And in that, uh, I start the piece off saying that uh, I would venture to say that cybernetics would have been little more than a post-war oddity were it not for the social scientists who keep reviving it today. Um, I, I, I like, I think that it is, a, that it, that is exactly it. I mean, we're, we're contributing to that by talking about it, but I think you are right that like there, it, it is not, it, it, cybernetics to me today does not seem to be the purview of the engineers, but more the purview of the historians and the social scientists who hope that it can maybe hold the future to a better future. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, so the connection, uh, I mean, I'm so sticking to CyberSyn for a second, I, I, we have to understand that much in it is inspired by this one character called Stafford Beer, who I investigate and I discuss at length and in depth in the podcast. And Stafford Beer is a fascinating character in, in many respects, but he comes probably from, well, he was not probably, but he comes from two worlds. And that's how he would probably describe himself. One is operations, so operational research, a discipline that's now almost been forgotten, but which was huge in the 1940s during the Second World War and afterwards, especially in industry, which is where he cut his teeth working for United Steel. Uh, and then the world of cybernetics, which in his case was more of an acad academic, not even affiliation, even though he taught as an adjunct in various business schools, but it is more of an intellectual affinity he had with a certain community of people working on cybernetic topics in academia. But I would say that the majority of his ideas and thinking and methods and uh, ways of thought and what eventually makes it to um, CyberSyn, it was really operational research. Now, Beer was a very skilled salesman and he prided himself on it in some private correspondence that I've, I've seen. And uh, Beer has done a very good job of essentially inventing his own discipline, which he called management cybernetics, uh, which really is, for me, a mix of some management, a lot of operational research, and some very basic concepts from cybernetics. But I've interviewed many people who worked, for example, for a consulting company that he founded and ran in the 1960s. All of them tell me that there was virtually no cybernetics involved as far as they were concerned. They never had cybernetics. It was as much as it connected to a discipline, that discipline was operational research. Uh, of course, there was a certain intellectual cachet and an image to cybernetics, and maybe it was worth leveraging because... Uh, it made you look like a much more holistic thinker than a guy who just thinks about how to distribute widgets across, you know, factories, which was what operational research was. It was essentially a matter of solving distributional and logistical challenges. It was not a matter of thinking how different social systems from the universe to the, uh, you know, microbes connect to each other and how feedback loops run through them. So if you really wanted to sound fancy and present a holistic view of the world, uh, you needed to wear the cybernetic hat, right? So it just so happened that in Chile, there was a tradition uh, of operational research, in part because Beer's firm uh, was active in Chile in the 60s. The way, and again, it's a fascinating case study. I mean, you can write a whole theory of imperialism by studying cybersyn in a sense, because in a way, his firm 
<laughs> his firm was a British outlet, but it was part of a bigger French consulting empire. But as a British outlet, they managed to leverage some connections to the British state, which was expanding or helping its own industries expand. And, uh, well, the, the connections around steel, which still Britain was very strong in, was one connection, but the bigger connection, which then boosted their business tremendously in Chile of the British, of this British consulting outlet was trains, right? So because the, the Chileans were expanding the train system and the British wanted to somehow make sure that there was British equipment and expertise that was being used in Chile and Beer's consulting outlet managed to ride on that expansion of British capital in Chile. And they established a po kind of an office with a lot of some people kind of being there permanently and some coming and going. And they brought a lot of operational research methods to Chile in the early 60s. There were already professors of operational research in Chile at the time. And essentially, uh, a lot of young engineers who were studying industrial and civil engineering in the early 60s at the Catholic University in Chile, which plays a big role in, in my podcast, uh, they... Uh, new operational research. So they were much more familiar with it than they were with cybernetics. And they knew of Stafford Beer because of this connection of his firm to the to the country. At least Fernando Flores, the key bridge between uh, Beer and Chile, knew of him. And that's how his ideas penetrated Chile. And that's how kind of when he accepted the challenge to come and help Allende kind of think about the management challenge, um, there was already a group of people who were familiar somewhat with his thought. So he was preaching to the choir in a sense. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I got us away from cybernetics, but I'm happy to get on that. Course. No, no, that's good though. I, I think grounding it in operational research, operational research is absolutely crucial here as well. Because you know, when when I think of operational research, I the you know two things immediately come to my my mind. One is the Rand Corporation, right, uh, and then the other is Robert McNamara, right. And so, like, that's the kind of legacy of operational research. You know, is Robert McNamara, right, that the uh, uh, um, Secretary of Defense during the '60s was, you know, supposed to bring this kind of systems analysis, operational research methodology that he developed while at Ford um, and his, you know, group of whiz kids uh, into the art of war, right? And it was a, a, a massive failure because that, that was, you know, I mean, in regards of like, yes, it destroyed an entire country and region in Vietnam, um, but it was a massive failure in terms of it was not what it was meant to be, which was supposed to be a, a much smarter um, uh, way of doing war, uh, a way of doing war as a systems analyst. Uh, and so I think that context is also really interesting to be like, that's in large part the the broader discipline that Stafford Beer is coming out of, um, you know, in operationals re operational research, um, but he's doing it with this kind of cybernetic flavor on it. And then, of course, it gets um, taken up in Chile, and he himself changes really radically because of that. And I, I, I do think that, you know, your podcast is, uh, series is quite explicitly not just about uh, a case study of Cybersyn. It's really as much about the legacy of Stafford Beer and the kind of the development of Stafford Beer over those years uh, into 
I mean, just very, very socially, personally, intellectually having these massive changes um, to his life in large part because of his uh, engagement with Chile, uh, Fernando Flores, Allende, and Project Cybersyn. Mm -hmm. So, um, Stafford knew quite a lot of those people from RAN Corporation. He knew the Undersecretary of Defense who uh, came from RAN and was working under McNamara. Um, he, uh, Beer, would, uh, of course, uh, differentiate himself from that crowd by claiming that he was much more holistic, systemic, and these people were just too much focused on optimizing and counting and algorithmizing things, and they couldn't really have this holistic perspective. To some extent, it's true, because he did have a profound engagement with philosophy and especially Eastern philosophy. Um, he spent time in India, stationed there at the very end of the Second World War. He spoke some of the local languages. He was deeply familiar with Eastern religion. So he had this natural proclivity to somehow think in a, in, 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 in a way that was not just the classical kind of uh, here is how you optimize a system way that was typical of RAM. Um, in itself, of course, it didn't have to map out on any kind of leftist progressive thought. It might have as well mapped out on some kind of holistic cooperativism where you would be thinking that everything is interrelated and there is a hierarchy and we all need to uh, kind of abide by the rules that the system has uh, set for us without fully grasping them because they're too holistic, right? So there is, no, there is no functionalist correspondence between having this holistic outlook and having leftist ideas. I mean, it doesn't, you, you might end up with Hegel, but you know, Marx, but you might also end up in a, in a much worse place. Um, so, um, in a sense, and that maybe partly gets us to why I even took this on. Um, the story of beer uh, and the story of many of the people involved in this project, it's just so melodramatic in a good sense of the word that I think it's, um, I wanted to do something that would not just be, you know, another new left review essay where you just have this very dry analytical mode of presentation and you did it and you kind of grasp all the concepts, but you kind of don't know what to do in a sense. It doesn't move you in any way. Uh, and I think on the right, um, uh, there's been a realization that you move people by appealing to them in a somewhat different way. And, you know, and that's why I think probably for all of her faults and uh, analytical inconsistencies, Anne Rand has done so much more to mobilize support for capitalism than Friedrich Hayek, right? As much as I uh, kind of have studied lots of Hayek, I think that there are other ways of mobilizing um, ideas, passion, effects, and so forth, and doing it through almost a novelistic form, which is what I try to do in the, in the podcast, you know, I really thought through every single scene, you know, how do I set it, where do I set it, what's the point of the scene, you know, how does the character arc look in each episode, in each scene across the podcast on its own. It was really a way for me to think about what does it mean to give these ideas to the public, but to present them in a way that moves them not necessarily through logic, but through emotion and kind of connecting to the dramas and traumas. Because for all the faults and scientism and excessive technocratic outlook, which I do detect and criticize in somebody like Stafford Beer, to some extent in Fernando Flores, um, they've made sacrifices, right? And they've made under pressure, they've 
they've made, I think, correct ethical and moral choices. Sometimes they've overdone it. I think Stafford Beard definitely overdid it, locking himself up in that cottage with no running water and like suffering for decades as if it was him who was responsible for the downfall of, of the end of the end the government. But nonetheless, um, these people made honest decisions and they paid for them. Uh, at least in the case of beer, clearly, you know, it was somebody coming from an upper class British um, background who could be anything he wanted. He could be a member of parliament, he could be a minister, he could be the CEO of the company. And he almost got there. You know, he had a Rolls Royce and a fancy mansion and he had a lot of children and he had a pool and he was on first name terms with anybody who was anybody, including, uh, you know, the father of Ghislaine uh, Maxwell, right, Robert Maxwell. So uh, he could be anything he wanted. And he kind of threw it all away and became the socialist hippie hermit because he passionately believed in this project. And he saw what his previous world, the one where he belonged, where he, you know, he served in the military, he served in the British intelligence, he served in British business. He was part of that milieu. He saw what it did to crush an honest Latin American country. And he just couldn't go back to his previous life. And I sympathize with that decision. And I think that it's not that I think that this is the way to change the world, but it's the kind of honesty that I think we should appreciate and celebrate and, uh, in a way, um, encourage. Right. So, uh, that's why I thought it's worth speaking that story up because the drama and the trauma inside it in a way is something that allows us to, for all the flaws of cyber scene, you know, it was it was based on many flawed assumptions, I think, both about the geopolitics and the reality of implementing it. And the design wasn't really as democratic as Stafford Beer imagined. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to criticize it, but at least they tried and they tried honestly and they did their best and they ran against the wall and many of them paid for it uh, with their lives being completely transformed. But it's something that I think we should celebrate uh, at almost at the level of myth, right? It's the kind of mythological project that like the French commune, you know, now we don't, do we really know every single thing that happened in French Commune? And was it really the way we remember it and know about it? Like the Paris Commune, sorry, not the French Commune. I mean, probably not. But it's a myth that inspires and informs and gives us hope and encouragement and enthusiasm. And in a sense, cyber scene, I think, has to, it works much better as a myth than it works as a kind of technological case study in an STS kind of, you know, like, no, it's not... It's not that. You can unpick it. Uh, you can know every single thing that happened and interview everybody who participated and have a very detailed view of what it is. And you still will fail to understand it's important as a mess because you really need to have a, almost an anthropological mindset, which STS claims to cultivate, but not very successfully, and to fully understand what the mythology uh, is about because you need to relate it to the current struggles of the left and its inability to have this organizing mythology of some kind, right? And that's what I try to kind of get at in the podcast. That's why, you know, for me, getting the right music into the right place, into the right scene, into the right episode was so important, right? It really had to work at the emotional level and not just at the cerebral cognitive level. Talking about it as like, you know, having this sort of mythological project going on, it was also making me think about how I think you've talked a little bit here on how, you know, there is uh, an invocation of cybernetics uh, that in one way or another might have provided cover to for ambitions about 
organizing or distributing widgets and resources, but might have given way to eventually like aspirations about you know or alternative visions for geopolitics for organizing society i mean similarly today with the with the left do you feel that you know i think you talked a bit about how you know a lot of these ideas were far ahead of the time or in even what we have now when we're talking about sovereignty when we're talking about imagining uh how technology could be seized upon or integrated or deployed um do you do you feel that you know we, we talked a bit about not trying to project the past onto the present and so forth. Do you feel like there is some lineup or analogy there where there, again, seems there uh, seems to be an sort of paralysis and a reliance on cybernetics or reliance on other sort of lower level ideas, narratives that, that are not going to help organize the way that a myth might? Sure. Um, I mean, look, there is cybernetics and there is cybernetics, right? I mean, you can, of course, read cybernetics as an extremely conservative discipline. And some thinkers in France, you know, in the 50s and 60s, for example, did that. They thought that it was all about equilibrium seeking. So you wanted to have homeostasis and it was all about building societies that were much, that were more harmonious, that could uh, balance themselves despite all the disruptions. So, uh, and, you know, and you can see how, that conservative attitude then morphs into extremely conservative sociology uh, as a debt, for example, in, in, in the United States with somebody like Talcott Tal- Parsons, right? Uh, there, which then informs a lot of kind of, you know, American social science in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I mean, he really embraces this uh, conservative, cybernetic, equilibrium, homeostasis-focused view and that everything else that's not uh, homeostasis-conducive is pathological and we need to somehow get rid of it because it disrupts the equilibrium. So it's a very conservative view of cybernetics. Um, The redeeming feature of Stafford Beer and that's where I think there is relevance in his thought and relevance to some extent in, 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 in how CyberScene approached reality is that Stafford Beer starts on the assumption that um, reality is what he calls incipiently unstable. Right. So essentially, there is always change happening out there. This change is becoming progressively more and more intense and more and more complex. And unlike most technocrats of the socialist band who think that, oh, this is terrifying. We need to build a system for simplifying everything and taking control and making sure that this complexity doesn't lead to irrational outcomes and kill us. Beer says, no, 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 this complexity is great. We want more complexity because more complexity means more complex behaviors. It means people not being bound by rules and laws and religious norms. It basically means what liberalism always wanted. It means people living their lives the way they want without necessarily harming others. And as long as we can allow them to do that, that's great. But what Beer is saying is that, okay, clearly this complexity, it's producing all sorts of system-threatening effects. That if you allow for too much complexity and if you don't have ways of somehow reducing it by allowing for novel forms of social coordination among people, groups, neighborhoods, social movements, and so forth, you're going to end up with this complexity completely overflowing the system and crushing it. Right, But instead of, again, reducing the complexity and rationalizing everything and simplifying things the way traditional socialist technocracy, bureaucracy wants to do, he basically said, no, we need to leverage the power of information technology in order to make sure that we can have complexity and survive it. 
So, you know, we'll be building uh, systems that will allow us to coordinate better. You know, his favorite example was the timetable in a school. Uh, you know, sure, you can run a school without a timetable and then people will just need to guess where the class is and who's teaching it and what room it is and it will be a mess. So you can just build a system which actually reduces complexity by allowing different groups inside an institution such as a school to coordinate better, right? And, you know, you can have all sorts of critiques of the, the schooling and Ivan Ilyich's critiques of school as bad, whatever. That's not what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is that you can have systems that are purely informational, technological, and that are not market-based, or they don't have to be market-based, for allowing for this complexity to flourish, right? And I think where it's very productive to contrast the system with neoliberalism is that neoliberalism in the way of Hayek, who was very well familiar with cybernetics, Hayek tells you, well, the only way to have this, to have complexity while reducing it and make sure it doesn't overflow the system is to delegate everything to the price system. So it's only through the price system and the market that you can achieve this utopia where you're becoming, you live in this liberal paradise where you can pursue alternative projects and be whatever you want as a consumer entrepreneur. And in the end, the market will make sure that the complexity that results from all these new interactions and identities doesn't overpower the system and doesn't crash it. And Stafford Beer basically says, well, maybe, but why do we have to rely on the price system only? I'm kind of putting words in his mouth, but that's the implication of his thought. Right? That you can reduce complexity directly through building information, communication, and coordination systems. In a way, of course, he's right. And this is what the guy who, in a sense, commissioned CyberSyn, Fernando Flores, then that's in Silicon Valley. You know, after his time in prison in Chile, after the coup, he goes and does his PhD in uh, Berkeley with uh, John Searle and Herbert Dreyfus, you know, the two critics of artificial intelligence. And he kind of gets this idea that instead of uh, relying on uh, computers to replicate human intelligence, which is what the traditional kind of AI paradigm of Minsky and uh, to some extent even Simon was, we need to build systems that in, in, in that kind of augment human intelligence, but we do that by building systems that allow humans to coordinate better. Right, So humans working in a company, for example, they can coordinate better if, we, for example, if you look at language, it's a commonsensical assumption to think that we coordinate through language. I say, you know, I will be at this place at this time. You hear it and you know that I'll be there, so you go there as well. But what Flores basically said is not all utterances that we make are like. Some of them are promises, some of them are commitments. Uh, you know, you can basically classify them. And if you classify and make this dimension of language implicit and then embed it in software, and then you allow people to basically specify what kind of an utterance they're making, you can allow for more smooth, efficient coordination within an institution, which of course is true. I mean, we don't coordinate inside entities by running an auction system the way Hayek would have thought, right? I mean, and there, there are all sorts of theories of the firm which explain why it's not the case. But what uh, Flores did was essentially say, okay, we can build software that facilitate this non-market coordination within institutions. And I think it's that insight. And of course, Silicon Valley was the one who then monetized this effort and eventually managed to build a great commodified system around um, an object that meant to facilitate non-commodified communication in a way, right? It's, it's a very, it's, it's an ironic, it's an ironic point, but it basically tells you what 
non-technocratic socialism might be about. It would be about building these infrastructures of social coordination that will allow us to have more complexity in society, that will allow us to coordinate better, that will allow for more social complexity in the way, you know, liberalism allows for more social complexity in the good sense, but without the baggage of relying on the market as the only way of doing it. And without living in a world where you have to simplify and rationalize everything so that you end up with this very simplistic, technocratic socialism that many of us find unappealing. So that, I think, is the life part uh, of cybersyne and cybernetics. Most people who study cybernetics wouldn't even recognize it as belonging to cybernetics. It's essentially something that Beer developed building on this guy called Ashby and Ashby's law and requisite variety. And, you know, he managed to build a whole theory out of it without necessarily linking it to other people on the, well, other people on the left is again, is a bit of a misnomer because even though beer identified later in life as a socialist, I don't think that he actually was very well familiar with what was going on even in Britain in leftist circles, right? So that's the tragedy of beer. I mean, he continued fashioning himself as a scientist and he never, despite knowing people in leftist circles, he never managed to properly convert his theories of cybernetic management or management cybernetics into something that the left can actually do and operationalize and even link to something a little bit more profound in terms of social theory, right? And if he did that, you know, we would have spent 1990s talking about Stafford Beer and not Anthony Giddens. Giddens. Everything you've just said is so, so fascinating as well, because I think it does also link back to the the podcast series in a in a meta sense. You know, we were talking you were talking about uh, mythology, right? The Cybersyn as a as a mythology, and that's that's good, right? That's a kind of a good way, a good entry point into a good framing of it. But also I think as well, linking that to this conversation we're we're just having around uh, complexity versus simplicity. It's a mythology in a way as well that does not mean simplifying it, right? Because like, you know, simplifying it into this kind of two-dimensional, um, you know, storybook version of it that can be a mythology, but it becomes a lot more complex and complicated through this mythology, um, which I think, you know, I'll you know, throw all my cards on the table here as well. Of course, I was very familiar with Cybersyn as, as an STS case study. Um, in a lot of ways before coming to you uh, and listening to the um, the Santiago boys. And I, I think everything you've just laid out here really emphasizes to me um, how much my own, well, yes, I did have this kind of mythology framing of cybersyn as like, you know, this, this is the, you know, the kind of the real utopias of the past that we can look back to, right. Or the, the real almost utopias, um, that we can look back to, but as well, I mean, I think, uh, I, I, I realized that I did have, um, a, 
a, a much more simplistic understanding of what it was because you are talking about how uh, you know finding liberty in the complexity, right? And that's something that Stafford Beer is really invested in. You know, he has this concept of the liberty machine, um, and that you know complexity is not not tampering complexity or defeating complexity, but embracing, managing, living in and with complexity as a form of, uh, of finding liberty. Um, that, I mean, that is such a more radically, that's such a radical alternative to the classic capitalism versus socialism debate, which is one about, um, you know, it, it's as, as you were just talking about, it really is often framed in terms of like, you know, the, the kind of central top down planning of socialism or the decentralized um, coordination through the price system of capitalism. And the, the ideas that Stafford is creating here and trying to enact through Cybersyn pose a, a third way, but not the neoliberal third way, but a much more radical alternative to the traditional framing of, of, of top-down socialism versus decentralized capitalism. And, and I don't know. I mean, I think because I, I always kind of understood Cybersyn as essentially a form of planning, cybernetic planning, right? It was a, uh, a, a machine for doing planning really well. And like, okay, well, that's great. You know, like if we can get a more planned economy, um, for socialism, then that's is surely better than, uh, than, than the other binary alternative there. But I, I think that your, your analysis of it, your framing of it, and by especially really paying a lot of attention to Stafford Beer um, and and what he's actually trying to do, what he's actually thinking um, in terms of the, the concepts of applying cybernetics and, and complexity, really draws out of it, yes, this mythology of cybersyn, but also a so much more complicated, so much more fascinating story, and also complicated because it's riddled with contradictions as well. Um, it was not, uh, you know, it was not originally, and as you get into in the series, it was not as if everybody in Allende's government was like, yes, Cybersyn is a technology for doing socialism, and we all agree that it's the future and that we need to do it. There was a lot more kind of ambiguity and differences of, of opinion and viewpoint of what the purpose of Cybersyn even was or, or could be within Allende's government. Yeah. So my estimate, having talked to some ministers who survived, you know, the coup and who are still alive and a lot of bureaucrats, my estimate, rough estimate is that 90% of senior people inside the government had no clue about cybersyn even existing. Um, so again, we, from today's vantage point, we tend to think, ah, you know, it was a system that Allende conceived and they executed it and it was their perfect response. And in fact, it was a prototype experiment run in a agency of the government with this weird British consultant coming in. And maybe if they had another five, 10 years, it would receive the prominence that it got. But because of its weird nature, uh, it did get media attention in Chile during the government. And, you know, the military started thinking that maybe it was a system used to plan the economy and it was used to maybe organize resistance after the coup. So it had its own mythology around it, even in Chile itself. But I think it's very important for us to understand that 
to even think about it as a system for planning, I think is a misnomer because ultimately it was a system for management. Uh, you know, these enterprises that they ran, they still existed in the market. It's not that they abolished private property and commodity system in Chile. I mean, it was a market economy by and large where some of the companies were run uh, from that building of Corfo. I mean, essentially, uh, all that changed is who was the owner and who uh, sat on the board, um, right? But uh, there was no planning in the sense of the Soviet planning of 1920s and, and, and 1930s, right? So it was a system where you really need to manage, and you need to manage in real time. And since you had limited managerial capacity, you needed to apply the same template to every enterprise so that then you will be able to draw inferences about w whether a certain branch of industry is working correctly whether a certain industry is working correctly, whether a certain you know ministry is working correctly, there was a way to scale it all up in terms of management. So, had it been implemented fully, you would have all the parts of the Chilean government relying on the same stack, so to say, to check what's going on in their part of the economy and then potentially pass it on to others. Right? If they couldn't manage it, the system would automatically pass on. Uh, a signal that something uh, need, needs to be repaired. So, in that sense, uh, it's really a way of managing and problem solving. Um, and um, in a sense, when you think about complexity, that's what you want, right? You want to let complexity run its course and only intervene when certain problems are arising. And I would argue that within the socialist tradition and kind of non-statist socialist tradition, including in Britain itself, you know, if you look at the work that T.P. Thompson was doing and a lot of people that he was celebrating on this kind of more association, associationist socialism, if you will, where civil society and groups and associations play a much bigger role than the state that, you know, the Fabians celebrated or, you know, the traditional socialists uh, celebrated, Stafford Beer just had trouble connecting to that tradition, even though they were his natural allies. And this is why I think you really have to account for class and the class nature of British society and where he came from. And I think he made enormous changes within himself to kind of understand really how his baggage and how his class prevented him from really understanding what was really happening in the world, but he couldn't go all the way through. So, you know, he still wanted to be the designer of the system, right? And that, in a sense, is the paradox uh, in this whole setup, because you want to empower people and you want to make sure that they participate, but you still need to be the designer. And that's what Stafford Beer wanted to do, right? And that's the critiques, and that's an important part also in the podcast, the critiques he was getting from this bottom-up radical British leftists were exactly of that nature. But, you know, Stafford Beer thought that the system that he was building was participatory because workers could contribute knowledge about what was truly happening in the factory when they were building the model of the factory, right? But by that token, Taylorism was participatory because workers had to share the knowledge with the person mapping the workflow during the work study, right? It, it, it's, it's not, it was not participatory in a sense that the workers were involved in designing 
explaining how that whole system would operate, how would those chairs that everybody knows in the operations room would look like, how many of them there would be, whether there would be a table, how many screens, all of that was Stafford Beer, right? And it's at that level that uh, radical British leftists who were much closer to this bottom-up associationist tradition of socialism uh, were attacking him. Because they immediately saw that uh, kind of behind this uh, rhetoric of democracy, you had essentially um, a concentration of power and expertise in Stafford Beer, the scientist who would say, no, we need to have seven chairs in the room because that's what empirical studies of psychology tell us. And I am the guy who knows it. Right. So there was there is an interesting kind of STS expertise story to be told here. But then again, you need to see it against the geopolitical struggles of the day, right? And this is where I think, you know, not to sound like Lenin, but, you know, there was a certain infantilism among the British leftists who were criticizing, uh, who were criticizing beer because they kind of wanted to have ultimate democracy in a country where the CIA operators were everywhere. ITT was trying to crush Allende. You had the military who wanted to pull in a coup. And I mean, was it really wise? I mean, I, it definitely wasn't wise to have Stafford Beer, this British guy who had no clue about Latin America, making all the calls and making all the decisions. But it would be equally unwise to just let it go and say, you know, let's just let workers decide as if we are in Norway of, you know, 1990 where there is absolutely no danger, no risk, and nobody's trying to overthrow you, right? So, and I think that a lot of the benchmarks that the radical left was applying uh, to assess cyber scene and kind of point out its dictatorial, authoritarian, big brother in nature, they were completely deaf to the geopolitical context of them trying to survive a massive onslaught uh, of the CIA and ITTs and the, and the Chilean military and the right-wingers. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that as well is yet another um, far more complicated kind of a fold in the story that you draw out is that uh, on one hand, the 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 kind of leftist attacks that that beer and cybersim were getting and you know that really caught beer off guard and really wounded him too. He, he really took it to heart and took it personally because it when the the leftist critiques went against, as you just explained, everything he was really committed to doing, but that that geopolitical um, aspect of it as well, you know, the the kind of leftist critiques also are really interesting in the sense of as we were talking about before, Cybersyn as this contemporary beacon of of, of socialist techno hope, um, and yet at that time it was very much being critiqued in very um, kind of classic ways that we would critique systems now as technocratic. Those same critiques were being levied against it. It, but always that that geopolitical context and and whether there's any uh, attention to the the political realities of that geopolitical context or themselves always coming to the fore and and I mean you know to to uh, ricochet back and forth between time periods um, you know. I know that uh, Ed and I have had discussions as well um, that we very much are appreciating and recognizing this kind of series of geopolitical of art uh, geopolitics of artificial intelligence articles that you've been doing, especially in Le Monde Diplomatique recently as well, and thinking about saying we need to be recognizing the geopolitical 
context of artificial intelligence now, just as we needed to understand in order to understand cybersyn requires understanding the geopolitics in order to understand what Stafford Beer was trying to do requires to understand it within the context of CIA saboteurs and corporate capitalist uh, influence, right? And I think I would venture to say you're you're making the same arguments now, saying it's all great and cool to have um, leftist critiques of AI, but what does that mean in terms of the geopolitics of it, uh, or is is that being lost here? And I think for a lot of people, it, it's lost because it was never in focus. Yeah. I mean, look, so for me, it was a big, it was a huge decision how to start the podcast because, you know, and, and I, I must confess that I was, I worked in it for two years, one year in having interviewed 100 people, I understood I was getting nowhere story-wise and I thought, okay, here I need to take a pause. So I took four months off and I went through every single Hollywood book on screenplay writing and like character arcs and character development. I really like that probably a hundred bucks that, you know, you read if you want a career in Hollywood, just to understand sort of what I shouldn't be doing uh, if I want to tell a story and what I should be doing. You know, in my temptation, having gone through all this literature, you know, and at some point I was just watching films and reading the screenplays to actually understand how you build a character arc. So I even went through that phase where I was just watching, you know, a film and then reading the screenplay the same evening. What I understood in this process is that, it would be so much easier for me story-wise to start the story with episode two, which is kind of where I start, you know, at the end of episode one where Stafford Beer gets a letter and, uh, you know, it's like you can see it almost in the film. Stafford Beer is in a pool with Robert Maxwell with, you know, the bourbon on his belly and, you know, they're smoking cigars and this. And that's actually almost sort of how it happened. I mean, they were in that pool, but the letter arrived a bit later. So, you know, he's there and then the letter arrives and then he gets this call and he embarks on a journey and you get into the typical kind of Hollywood Campbell uh, hero's journey bullshit, right? It would be just so much easier, but I, I, I thought that it would just not do justice to the story because it would then completely distract us from the fact that this is Latin America in the middle of the Cold War. Allende is part of a very shaky coalition of six parties. There is discord among them. His own daughter doesn't believe in his project. Uh, you know, there are efforts to sabotage him. There is ITT that's trying to uh, prevent his victory. There is CIA. There are the local Chilean economists, you know, the Chicago boys. There are industrialists. It's a mess, right? And it's, it's a mess made worse by them nationalizing all these companies with having nobody to run them. And it's in that mass that Stafford Beer kind of steps in without probably realizing 90% of what was going on before he said yes, right? And for me to ignore that background to the story and just focus on uh, this being kind of having far-sighted Chilean technocrats like Fernando Flores being ahead of the world and inviting this British guy to get on a plane and come help them run this very cool project, it just wouldn't do justice to the story because this story, the origins of the story, they, they it starts in a mass. <laughs> right? It starts in a global mass of the Cold War. Uh, and, and that's, I think, how we should read it. And that's the reason why the project eventually didn't work the way it wanted. And, you know, I point to all these tragedies in 
in the in the podcast because ultimately, you know, the body that commissions at Corfo then loses Fernando Flores, who was the patron saint of this whole project. He goes on to other jobs, and they lose their main benefactor and the main protector. And sort of, it's it's a whole operation put in place, but there is nobody to protect them. And in the end, Corfo doesn't really care about it. So the entity that commissions it loses interest. It's a whole tragedy there, right? And it's you think about Stafford Beer. It's somebody who puts everything on the line, his family, his finances, his consulting gigs, everything is riding on it. And he takes that bat and then he finds himself uh, doing exactly what his managerial practice kind of advises against. So if you read his books, he has this, I think he calls it a conetic variable. It's basically something where you, you become uh, think about you becoming dependent on some process that's not under your control, right? And you become essentially you fluctuate uh, in proportionally to the way this other thing fluctuates. So you become fully dependent on something that's not under your control. And he basically cautions that you have to identify it and you have to do all this sort of sampling through black boxes and make sure that you as an enterprise have no such kinetic variables in your way. And in a sense, he becomes completely dependent on the unfolding of the Chilean revolutionary process and the Cold War, and it becomes a huge mess for him. And I must say that, you know, he doesn't jump the ship. You know, until the end, he fights and he becomes more and more radicalized. And in the end, once the whole thing unravels, he very decently helps the Chilean colleagues to resettle in the UK. And he finds them jobs and he turns his villa in a mansion into almost a hostel for these refugees. He he does the right thing, you know. And it's again, it's at that level of myth that I think we need to celebrate him. But I also think we need to give the due historical and geopolitical context to cybersyn because without understanding this massive background we're just not getting to the heart of the story yeah absolutely i mean there's there are a lot of different ways to tell a story and yeah on stafford beer's point i mean he's he's racked with survivor's guilt is really the kind of you know the the aftermath of of uh, of his life um you know after the the coup but but i was okay so since we're talking about the story itself of the podcast i mean that's so fascinating. I had no, I look, I, we were talking before recording that the podcast itself is really the tip of the iceberg, right? That like beneath the surface supporting it is, and there, there's a, you know, a website for the podcast that has all these um, resources and uh, so much, you know, extensive, extensive research that you've done here that supporting this podcast is, you know, over 200 interviews. I mean, just a, an enormous amount of research, but I knew all of that. I had no idea that there was also an enormous amount of research going into just the structure of it. You know, you're, you, I, I was going to ask you, Yevgeny, if, uh, you know, cause the, the podcast is of course scripted and it is backed up by all these footnotes and research and amazing uh, original interviews, archival work, all of that stuff. Um, and so I was like, you know, it seems so, uh, readily and easily turned into a verso book called the Santiago boys, you know, for people who want to read it rather than listen to it. Um, but maybe, maybe it's actually more that it's a, a, a documentary, um, mini series or something. And, but like, I guess more seriously, like, is there something else that you imagine doing or is the podcast going to be a standalone thing? 
So I am, um, how should I put it? There are a couple of other projects in development that I have. Uh, all of them kind of dealing with similar themes. I mean, the, the big theme that I see, podcasting projects, the big theme that I see really are tech rebels that failed. So, but honest tech rebels, you know, the, the utopians who meant well, you know, I'm not talking about Adam Neumann or, you know, Elizabeth Holmes, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the typical kind of Hollywood bullshit story of tech rebels that fails, right? I mean, if you look at them, uh, they're very flat characters. They are just driven by arrogance and hypocrisy and like nothing else. I mean, that's why the series that come out of this, I mean, all of them are based on podcasts, right? We crashed and the dropout. I mean, those are the two big series that came out. It's extremely one-dimensional flat characters that, you know, it's kind of junk food for the mind. And we've read the articles and we think, oh, wow, you know, there was George Schultz or whatever, Henry Kissinger involved in Terrano. So, I mean, that must be, but ultimately as drama, it's shit. Sorry for the, <laughs> sorry for the word. So, uh, I, just because of, you know, I haven't, as you know, I haven't published much in the last decade, but I've been doing research. So I'm sitting on tons of, I've been going to archives. I'm sitting on tons of materials. Some of them pertain to this other tech rebels that failed. Uh, so I might put out a few more projects in this vein. I mean, they take a lot of time in, in, in one of them. I'm relatively far ahead into production. So it might appear maybe next year, but ultimately, um, I'm trying to see if I will manage to carve out uh, a very peculiar medium because um, I do think that this project, the Santiago Boys, it works much better uh, as a podcast than as a book because you know here i really need to tap into people's emotions it's a it's a story of characters it's a story of moods uh and i need music i need sound effects uh and i just know i'm not john updike right i'm not gonna do it and yeah, i'm not even sure he would do it right I, it's 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 hard it's hard to have the same effect on the page as you can with sound something that i did not uh, realize before um but it's it's also a format where if my bat was the Santiago boys now works, it's a format where I can have as much nerdiness as I want in the footnotes and side notes. And, you know, the, the first episode has 70 footnotes. I mean, it's, uh, and I'm not even talking about show notes that are show notes that are separate. And then there are footnotes where I indicate timestamp of each phrase that I need to footnote. And then I provide, you know, if it's, I ended talking to the United Nations, I provide even the video to the full talk that I end the gifts. So if you really want to engage with this as historical material, you can engage with it in a way that possibly wouldn't in a book because, you know, they don't have hyperlinks. So, I mean, I'm really trying to <laughs> rebuild the hyperlink as something cool um, as, as, as a medium, right? So it's really a way of exploring history and doing history back. And ultimately, I was trained as a historian, so what the hell, I might as well try to, to think about presenting history in a different way. But uh, to me, it's also a way of maybe reaching out to a somewhat different audience, that the audience that traditionally reads my essays. And uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I don't want to do a documentary, but uh, a narrative film or series, I don't exclude that option. And, you know, and I kind of started it on the assumption that something like this would probably come out the end. So uh, if you were to ask me where it's likely to end up, 
it will probably end up on screen as opposed to the written page, but I wouldn't exclude the written page either as some kind of a site, as a site product. But uh, so, uh, again, it has to do with my own conviction that uh, the ideological battles uh, have to be fought in places that extend beyond New Left Review and Versabox, as much as I admire those two outlets, because it's basically people preaching to the choir. Uh, and um, we'll see if this bet pays off, but uh, it was an intense project. You know, I thought I knew how to tell a story, and as I sat one year in, I discovered I have no clue how to tell a story, and that, uh, and that just completely changes everything. It changes how you ask questions, what kind of questions you ask. Uh, I really approached it with this analytical, research-like documentary mindset. And that greatly shaped the questions I was asking in the first year of the project. And they were not at all driven by characters, by their struggles, by their anxieties, by their traumas. You know, what was the reaction? What did the wife think? You know, like now I really know a lot about Stafford Beard that never went into the podcast, right? And as they say in Hollywood, sorry, <laughs> for this cultural industry uh, 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 reference, but as they say in Hollywood, you know, the quality of the film is judged by the stuff that's left on the floor uh, during the editing process. So in my case, I'm like, swimming and drowning and stuff that's left on the floor because there is just so much and that's why I built the website uh, so the website serves that function but the process itself was for me very very exciting and so uh, we will see so ultimately it's it's also the to you know choosing the topic is hard so now as I take on other projects to continue this you know the most likely it'll be a trilogy, so it's the first of the of the three. As I take on, and I know what the second one would be, so I'm really thinking about the third one. It's really a very tough Venn diagram because you need to have something that kind of reflects upon my own intellectual work and analytical work and my theoretical work because I don't want to be talking about things that don't interest me theoretically. But it also needs to have strong characters and some geopolitics and it needs to have some kind of wild stories and intrigue. And uh, so it's, it's, it's a tough and it has to be real. right? That's the main problem that I had with this story. Because when you do, when you write a screenplay, for example, for a film, not for a documentary, but for a film or for a series, you know how the logic of drama works. Right? You know that here you need a supporting character whose function would be X, Y, Z, vis-a-vis uh, -vis your main character and vis-a-vis -vis your theme and your storyline. So you invent that character, and that character becomes uh, you know, an important part of the story, even though he never or she never existed. Right? Because you can say it's based on real events and you can fictionalize all you want. Um, and you kind of know as an experienced writer when you need such things. Right? You, you, you can have all sorts of tricks in the narrative that never happen, but that dramatize and help you dramatize better. Because that's what the logic of drama, you know, since Aristotle demands. When you do a project like I had done on Cyber Scene Now and the Santiago Boys, I don't have that escape path. Right? So I understand that here I really need to have a supporting character. I really need to have this event that will problematize something and that will dramatize something. But I don't have it. And I can't invent it. 
And this is where your mind goes into overdrive and you start interviewing people until they turn blue so that they can give you something that you can then use and dramatize and turn into the dramatic element you are searching for. Right? It's almost the opposite. It's not the opposite, but it's very different from how you think as an, as an academic producing an article or producing some kind of analytical study. Right? So for me, like, you, know, you can't imagine how many interviews I had to do until I arrived to an anecdote that Stafford Beer was like munching on um, whatever it was, uh, some fancy seafood in his Sheraton suit in Santiago. <laughs> right? I mean, it tells you something about Stafford Beer, right? But to get to that point, I had to endure lobsters, it was, yeah. So, but to get to that point, like in a country where you had price rationing, <laughs> you know, but to get to that point, you have to go through seven or eight rounds of interviews where like you don't know that he was eating lobsters, but you need to be asking questions that will kind of help you show the somewhat hypocritical dimension of Stafford Beer, right? And it's um, it's much better to be fictionalizing. Let me put it that way. So if anybody listening cannot decide between a career, like go into fiction. <laughs> Narrative nonfiction is hard. You know, it's possibly the hardest job in the business. I mean, because I think of it now, I had to think about it systematically what it is. I think what I'm doing and what I've done in this is what is, at least in the literary world, is known as um, uh, literary, wait a second, narrative nonfiction, right? So it's essentially, there is quite strong storytelling and there is uh, a lot of narrative and you think about characters and character arcs and themes and all of that, but ultimately it's nonfiction. So you, you're grounded in the world of facts. Uh, so, uh, which means that unless you really have a real story that has all the elements, you shouldn't be working on it, right? So, and I was, if you were to ask me, uh, knowing what I know now, should I have taken on Cyber Scene and the Santiago Boys as a story to tell in this way? <laughs> I would say, God, no, run away. Uh, because if you think about it, like uh, on the surface, it looks like a great story, right? It has everything. But then you try to think about it. Look, it's a project that never really worked a day in its life, at least the way it was conceived. It, uh, it, you know, it's something that gets commissioned and then kind of dies a slow death inside the Chilean bureaucracy. I mean, of course, yes, they are compiling the data and it arrives to Corfo, but that room that everybody knows, I don't think it was operational for a single day. Like there was like, they didn't have a telex as far as I know. So it was just a room with a lot of interesting materials for presenting presentation purposes, right? But as a, if, if you think about it, what you want in your story is something where like they are building a secret weapon and then they're using the secret weapon to crush you know, the enemy. And that's how you build tension. And my story, it's, it's a, they want to build a secret weapon and then they never actually build it, and then nothing happens, and then the regime collapses, <laughs> collapses, right? So I had to jump through a lot of hopes to turn it into drama. And I think in the end, uh, you know, the real drama uh, is not about tension between Allende and the CIA and whatever, but it's the tragedy of beer embarking on this process and risking so much and then seeing that, like, no, it's not going to happen and still somehow maintaining his cool and uh, finding other ways to help Chile. Right? So in the end, it turns into a real drama as opposed to a thriller. And you can still have thriller-like elements because th th there is clearly a lot of stuff going on and th they're being contested on every corner. 
But uh, yeah, that's, I mean, in the end, I'm happy that I've done it. And I think it contributed a lot to my intellectual development, but it just proved so much more difficult as, a, as an exercise in, in dramatic storytelling than I originally envisioned. Because I never envisioned it somehow as an exercise in dramatic storytelling. And only halfway into the project, I understood that that's what it was, that it wasn't going to be a documentary because as a documentary, it would just be, it would not do what I wanted it to do because it would just reinstate all the all the things we already know about CyberSyn but without having this mythical dramatic effect that would get people to rethink their own lives and uh, we don't do such things after documentaries normally <laughs> so in here I mean I think that people can find resonance in what Stafford Beer is doing and what Fernando Flores is doing and the kind of struggles that Allende goes through I mean I, I start with Allende because I think there's a story that you can't really understand and just think about Allende uh, you know nine months before he commits suicide knowing that essentially it's all over and asking his son-in-law to store his papers in the Cuban embassy and like burn them. I mean, this is a very, there are a lot of touching, very touching moments in the podcast, which I think we all can relate to at the kind of archetypal level. And, uh, you know, when you do it in a more documentary way, you just don't, you focus on something else. You focus on the state of the Chilean economy in December, 1972, and this kind of more personal dimension and disappears and it gets basically ties your hands and that you cannot uh, communicate to a public that really wants to feel and relate to these people as characters and not just as historical figures. There, there's also, you know, earlier you talked about how you only kind of, you know, you also want to only focus on the sort of honest tech rebels um, if you're going to, when operating in this sort of mode. Mm -hmm. um, Who failed. A failure yeah. is very important. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> But I'm also I'm also curious, you know, do you feel that there's still room to look at the dishonest ones? Because I, I feel like still, you know, like you said, it's one dimensional and flat and it doesn't lend itself to a story. But I do feel like a lot of times the, anal the analytical component or like maybe gleaning insight from situations like, for example, with some of these tech charlatans or with their financiers like with SoftBank, they're still missing the the geopolitical analysis. They're still missing like a larger monetary financial analysis, right? Well, I mean, I guess in the stories that I'm after, and I like I can't tell you about the second story I'm chasing now, but it's 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 in some sense it's wilder than 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 the first one. So uh, I try to find this honest tech rebel surrounded by dishonest people who then become the rebels that we all get to know and celebrate in some sense, right? I mean, the Santiago boys, it's it's more complicated because. I wouldn't say that Fernando Flores was dishonest. I mean, he was a very honest man who went to La Moneda on the day of the coup and then spent three years in prison. But uh, he was a very, let's say, egocentric character who then somehow, some people would say, it's not necessarily me, but some people would say instrumentalized cyber scene and beer. And once they became less useful to him, he then aligned himself with other forces, and he essentially emerged as this millionaire in Silicon Valley, having a lot of influence. And uh, so he's kind of the uh, he's, he's the other guy, he's the other character of the podcast who chose a very different path, right, from Stafford Beer. But uh, of course, and I I would need it 
probably another five episodes to tell that story fully, but and this is where we get to ITT. On the ITT side, you really have people who are... <laughs> I wouldn't say dishonest tech rebels, but they are, they really represent the American establishment, the American business. And in some sense, they share a lot of traits with Stafford Beer. And I will talk about ITT maybe uh, also a little bit now, but just think about two people inside ITT. So they had a CEO, a guy called Harold Janine, and they had um, a board member called John McCone. So both of them start, well, not started, but both of them spent a significant amount of time in the steel industry. And so did Stafford Beer. So now they come up from almost the same universes thinking about how do you optimize steel production? How do you sell steel? I mean, they come from the same intellectual environment. Um, they were really, in a sense, the <laughs> the kind of the model so what Stafford Beer might have become had he only played by the rules inside the corporate world, right? And uh, if you look at somebody like Janine, who was the CEO of ITT, I mean, he really takes this company uh, on, on a journey that I think ultimately crashes it into the ground. Uh, so he takes a company uh, and turns it into a conglomerate. Uh, and so uh, they, at some point in late 1960s, ITT does everything. They do publishing, they do bread, uh, they do insurance, they do car rentals, they do hotels. They're literally present in so many industries under the sun. But if you think about it, and that's a thought that occurred to me only later after I finished the podcast, in a sense, ITT at the time is almost the capitalist equivalent of Corfo, this agency of the Chilean government, which is tasked with almost the same mission. I mean, they're tasked with running 300 companies under the same umbrella that do everything from, you know, mining to um, making, I don't know, caramels, right? So in a sense, Corfu was the socialist conglomerate uh, and Stafford Beer was brought in to help optimize it and Jeanine and McCone, abetted by a very big investment bank, Lazards, uh, were trying to figure it out how to run it in the U.S. So uh, I think you can tell the stories in parallel of the kind of honest and dishonest tech rebels, but I think in the case, so you don't have to focus on just one, and I think clearly, you know, any good story requires good uh, antagonists, right? And any Hollywood screenwriter type kind of consultant will tell you that the best stories have antagonists joining forces against the protagonists. So you really want to have the CIA and the ITT and the, and the Chilean fascists and the Chicago boys eventually joining forces so that it becomes more and more difficult for Allende to oppose them. And that's kind of what happens. So in that sense, I was lucky like to fully dramatize that you would really need to go and paint more elaborate pictures of uh, each of them. And I just thought that if I really want to have the analytical and historical baggage that I offered in the podcast, I just can't do that, right? So in my case, it's also a matter of balancing of the kind of intellectual stories I want to tell, because I do want to have this podcast, you know, reviewed in the media and people having discussions about technology and expertise and geopolitics and big tech and what I call dark tech and cold war. But I also want to have these dramatic elements, right? Uh, of course, I could have chosen a very different balance. I could have thrown away all the analytical historical part and it would just be purely about characters and it will be even easier to understand for the general public. But then I would feel that as an intellectual, I would 
have wasted an opportunity to reflect upon this deeper layer of meaning right inside the story and i feel that then we wouldn't be having this conversation because it would just be a thriller like you know this is a british former intelligence officer recruited by socialists to fight his former adversaries in the itt and the cia which is it's a great story but there is no way you can build bridges from there to discussions about the future of socialism and complexity and everything else we've been talking about but in the case of itt i mean that really i think is the forgotten story uh, of the dishonest tech rebels in that, you know, and that does deserve a single podcast of its own because it's the most unlikely story you can imagine. You know, it's, it's, it's just a company that grows out of efforts by two brothers, the band, bro- the band brothers who are born on an island. It says like, you'll appreciate this anecdote. They're born in what is now Virgin islands. So they're born on an island. That's something like, you know, five minutes away by boat from the island of Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so he, the Epstein Island, I think, was Little St. Uh, little something. Anyway, like I've done the uh, St. James and theirs was St. Thomas, or something like that. So they are literally like next to each other. Um, and imagine the, in, at the time, the Virgin Islands belonged to Denmark. Uh, eventually, they become property of the U.S. And these two brothers, born on the periphery of different empires, and eventually, you know, of course, making their way to the American empire, they establish shop in Puerto Rico. Uh, from there, they branch out to Cuba. They become the operators of telephone and telegraph infrastructure in those two places. They have connections to Wall Street. They mobilize a lot of capital in Wall Street. They borrow a lot of money, you know, in a way that even SoftBank would find remarkable. So it's really a debt-driven, debt-fueled operation. And they leverage the competition between the U.S. and the British empires uh, for the hegemony of world communications to essentially use American might to squeeze their way into Latin America. So they become the company that controls the telecommunications in a lot of countries from you know, parts of Brazil to Argentina to Chile to Mexico and so forth, Spain. And that all happens throughout 1920s, which is ex- the exact time that the American empire, if you want to call it that way, takes over from the British one, uh, at least in Latin America. Right, and it's a remarkable transformation, especially when you think that they are running an industry like telephony, which is very sensitive because it involves you know charging rates and making huge capital investments. And the more you charge for tariffs, the more public hates you and rebels. And that's why you know in the U.S. there was always a pushback to have it run by municipal companies or by companies under the control uh, somehow of, of the state, because ultimately it, it was a mess. But outside of the United States. American companies like ITT, which then was factored in New York, were the providers of this infrastructure and could do anything they wanted with rates. They could pressure countries like they did with Chile into granting them the monopoly to run this for you know, 50 years on terms that were very ambiguous. So they weren't even committed fully to upgrading the networks and so forth. And what happens is that uh, by um, 1950s, there is a lot of pressure in Latin America and elsewhere to nationalize these companies, right? So Argentina buys them out, you know, other countries, Spain buys them out. So they, and they uh, slowly make their way into the defense industry. 
So ITT essentially establishes a huge defense operation. They make a lot of money. What happens in the 1950s is that they use their remaining properties in places like Cuba, Chile, and Puerto Rico to milk them for cash. They really don't care. They want to make any infrastructural upgrades. They just want to raise rates, make a lot of money, and have time to think. And as they're milking all these countries without investing, they end up in a situation where more and more local forces in those countries are rebelling against ITT. So in the case of Cuba, it's Fidel Castro who leads the charge. You know, he at the time is a young lawyer. He's really trying to sue ITT's local subsidiary because they're violating the contractual obligations to, to the country. It's a long story. In the end, Castro wins the court battle, but then the dictator rules him, and in the end, ITT prevails, and then ITT becomes the first company that Castro nationalized, one of the first companies that he nationalizes after the Cuban Revolution. The short story here uh, is that ultimately, uh, sooner or later, ITT becomes this financialized conglomerate, right? So they understand that the times when they were running tech infrastructures around the globe are over, so they basically use the cash they squeeze out of Cuba and Chile and other countries to purchase bakeries and rental car companies and the Sheraton chain. Um, even though it's not obvious, like, what do they have in common, right? It's not, there, there are no synergies of any kind. Uh, I mean, there are some between Sheraton and Avis car rental company that they have, but there are no synergies between the telephone equipment manufacturing, for example, and the bakery or the publishing business that they were running. Uh, while all of that is happening, they're left throughout the 60s and early 70s, they're left with just two properties, one in, of, in, in the core business of running telephony. One is in Chile, one is in uh, Puerto Rico. And essentially, they expect that Allende would nationalize them, and he kind of does, and they're very angry, and they try to do everything to disrupt him and block him and weaken him. And I describe a lot of this fighting between them and Allende in the podcast. And it's kind of a, it's a bizarre story because it damages ITT's brand. So they become this huge conglomerate, even though they're present. And, you know, and then by the late, it's kind of ironic because by late 1960s, the CEO, Jeanine, he's really obsessed with brand recognition. He thinks that nobody knows about ITT and it has to change. So he puts ITT's logo on Sheraton's, uh, you know, like notebook, notepads that you get in the hotel room. So it says ITT Sheraton. So he turns it into a huge brand. So he really leverages the power of the conglomerate. So all of his, many of his companies now carry ICT brand. And then he has this giant screw up in Chile because the perception is that ITT is trying to get rid of Allende and undermine him that prompts hearings in the U.S. Senate. And the brand just becomes completely devastated. The brand just gets destroyed, <laughs> which means that nobody now wants to be affiliated with ITT and they have to do the opposite. They have to go and remove ITT from every single brand that they put it on. And in the end, it's kind of, it's, it's a sad story. I mean, it's, a, it's not a sad story in that ITT gradually declines and splits into three companies, and uh, some of them reemerge as defense contractors, and uh, part of ITT still exists as ITT. But it's kind of a story. It's, it's almost like a prequel to what hits American capitalism in the decades to come, because ITT undergoes a lot of these problems decades before others. There is economic nationalism pushing against that. There is a transition to finance because the conglomerate form, it almost encourages you to think just about numbers. You're not thinking about long-term investments. You're not thinking about R&D. You don't have a core business. You're just spread between bakeries and car rentals. So you're just thinking about the bottom line. You're just obsessed about the share price 
price, the integration with ITT, the, the kind of the tech industry and Wall Street uh, happens already in the case of ITT and Lazard, and before that, Citibank and JP Morgan in the 20s. In many ways, it's a pioneering company that shows you like everything wrong that then goes with American capitalism in the decades to come. So in that sense, it's a fascinating story. And of course, if you look at the original founders of ITT, this band brothers, they're, they're, they're fascinating. I mean, they're fascinating because they they come from the periphery and they uh, one of them both of them i think actually serve in the military one of them is known as the colonel they really are the original kind of uh, revolving door between the tech industry and the military industrial complex and then they are, of course because they're running all the telegraphs and they're running the telephone lines they are participating in all sorts of crazy operations run out of nsa to monitor all of the telegrams, there is something called Project Shamrock that not many people know about, which was, in a sense, bigger than anything that Snowden, Snowden revealed. I mean, it was a, a way to monitor all of the telegrams leaving the U.S. that ITT was complicit in, and they were just let NSA have access to all the traffic. Right, So you can almost tell a parallel alternative history of our own technological present just by tracing ITT. I mean, I kind of toyed with that idea, but... In the end, it's more of a side story than the main dish, but I think it's a side story without which you can hardly understand Latin America. You cannot understand a lot of the things in Cuba before and after the revolution. You cannot understand the coup in Brazil without understanding how ITT prepared the ground for it, lobbying in Washington. You definitely cannot understand the story of Chile and Allende without that. So it's an important part, which I also think makes it relevant to the debates we're having about big tech today. Yeah, I mean, it's a side dish, but it is so fascinating in itself and, 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 and a rabbit hole that is, I mean, I think really worth getting into. Um, I mean, I re and, and in addition to everything that you've laid out here, you know, you have a piece coming out. Um, soon in Le Monde Diplomatique um, about ITT. And you open that piece talking about uh, the the weather underground bombings as well, right? Like, you know, I, I love this, uh, uh, you know, the, the this line you have in the piece where you say, compared to today's tech lash, a fancy way of describing the growing scrutiny of Silicon Valley, the tech lash against ITT consisted of more than just angry tweets, right? Because it was the subject of bombing by, you know, radical left-wing, uh, you know, terrorist groups who not only bombed their New York office, but also their offices in, in Rome and Zurich as well, as a direct response to um, the Chilean uh, coup and, and the, 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 the role or at least um, perceived role. And here is where the, you know, ITT's obsession with branding, uh, you know, bit them in the ass. Uh, the, the role that uh, the people said, well, ITT had a hand in this bloody coup and, and they have blood on their hands and, and, you know, we're the subject of bombings. I mean, that is itself also so extremely fascinating and linked as well to um, the fact that like, this was not a tech lash in the sense of like, ooh, boo, tel telephone and telegraphs, we hate it. But it was more of a, a geopolitical reaction to the military industrial complex, to a, corp uh, a corporation um, that was representative of the, uh, the role that capital was playing in the uh, oppression and domination of um, the, the global south. And, and it was as well 
linked to, and, and you know, we talked to about this a little bit with Malcolm Harris when we spoke to him about his book Palo Alto, about like at this time period as well, there was a lot of bombings of um, computer labs at universities, but especially and uh, always the ones linked to military research, right? And so it was again a tech clash that was not um, a critique or backlash against the technology itself. It was a critique and backlash and targeting of the military industrial complex and a recognition that the technology sector was playing a linchpin role in that geopolitical uh, you know, hegemony. Yeah, I mean, that story, I, I could, you know, I really spent a lot of time looking at ITT and its management, and especially this guy, John McCone, who was the director of the CIA during the coup in Brazil, and then was the instrumental link between ITT and the CIA when Allende got elected, got elected, right? So John McCone was this former CIA director on ITT's board, who then established the connection between ITT and the CIA when they were worried that Allende would get elected. So McCone, is all over this, but Macon's story deserves its own treatment and its own podcast in a sense because he was one of the key people involved in Bachtel. And, you know, in Bachtel, like, you know, that's really the private contractor that, you know, did lots of stuff everywhere. Whenever the U.S. foreign policy runs into a problem in Iraq and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia, Bachtel is released and they're the ones who are building everything. They're building roads, they're building infrastructures, they were building nuclear reactors for much of the 1930s and 1940s. So there are two distant biographies of uh, the company. Bachtel, I would say, is like far worse than ITT. I mean, ITT has a kind of had a connection to the military industrial complex and you know there were defense contractors and pretty sizable defense contractors during the Vietnam War but Bechtel was the military industrial complex it was really a company that was an enabling factor to the expansion and maintenance of the American empire for much of the 20th century so in a sense um and then we, we barely understand these connections, to be honest. So it's like the, the social networks, like we have this data now, so we can try mapping them out. But if you look at somebody like John McCone and you know and his and his wife, for example, that was the claim that Seymour Hirsch made in the early 1980s, that uh, John McCone's wife was very rich and she owned stocks in the Chilean, uh, in the American mining companies, copper companies that Allende was nationalizing. So McCone had other interests to oppose Allende because, you know, ultimately uh, he would, the, the, the shares might lose their value. So there are all these corporate connections, you know, Bachtel, ITT, this mining giants. Uh, you have this uh, Lazard, the, uh, you know, the investment bank that would eventually employ Emmanuel Macron. You know, you have uh, Citibank and J.P. Morgan in the 1920s. I mean, so it's it's not, and it's not even a conspiracy theory, right? I mean, it's all there. It's not, there is nothing that needs to be invented. Just that these power structures were there. And this is what strikes me as um, worth um, reflecting in the context of cyber scene. These guys, I mean, we tend to think of them as leftists, far-sighted, new cybernetics. They had no clue. 
I mean, they really had no clue who they were opposing. So in that sense, it's a little bit almost like Syriza, like opposing the European Central Bank. It's it's that level of naivete. Like they really had no clue who were they up against, and that's why you know you see them acting so arrogantly and brash and bold. And I end they included in in, you know, in in that crowd. They really had a poor understanding of the military tactics. They had poor understanding of intelligence. They underestimated how much espionage and spying was going on. Uh, Stafford Beer had a somewhat bad idea, having served in the British intelligence himself before. But I think he also had, until the end of his life, from what I know and heard, he also had not the best grasp of how power operates and how companies and uh, even though you know he was part of it, and maybe that what uh, kind of prevented him from seeing it in full, but uh, here you we, we 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 have to if there is something that we can blame or criticize this very nice uh, natured noble leftist for it's their naivete i mean that was the kind of naivete that destroys ambitious projects and that's why i had to bring in all this other leftist radicals from chile including the daughter of salvador Allende, beatriz who even though they had their own blind spots and they were probably not exactly, you know, the Democrats that we imagine, even though it's also a debatable point whether they were Democrats or not, but ultimately they had a much better grasp of who was fighting them on the other side. And uh, they had a much better understanding of what the Chilean military was prepared to do. And they knew exactly that there are probably bugs and listening devices everywhere. And the and Allende was not like that. He had a very, I think, rosy view of the Chilean military. He had, and many of his technocrats, they had a very unsophisticated view of surveillance. They uh, probably thought that ITT was like Coca-Cola or any other or Disney or any other American company. And I think they had very poor understanding of the CIA. And ultimately, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you see how that naivete plays out. Uh, and I don't want to like give too many spoilers because there is some intrigue and suspense going until the very end. But you see how that plays out in the novelty that both people involved in cyber scene and many of its subsequent interpreters and analysts ascribe to the operations room. Uh, right, as this kind of far-sighted center, or even the telex network that they were building, right? Because for many people uh, on the left, this is like, oh, this is the proto-internet. This is the space where Chilean economy was getting managed, without realizing that the real enemies of Allende got there decades earlier. And I kind of go and show how that actually happened. That. To some extent, you can also read cyber scene and this operations room as a testament to this complete, uh, completely unreasonable naivete of the left, who think that you know, since they have this fancy tool and a cool cybernetic theory to back it up, that they're really ahead of the enemy and they don't need to go and learn how to use guns and how to find bugs and uh, and listening devices. Right. So uh, that's why you know I always maintain this level of ambiguity because. It just was a project like this where, you know, it just, it's just, it's as if it was made for an exhibition in some Berlin museum, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, that the temptation to celebrate and glorify it and show these people were 100 years ahead of themselves and they really thought up the internet and they really thought up this big data management space. I mean, yes, we should celebrate them and some of it is true, but we should also look upon it as just a testament to how <laughs> naive uh, people can be, uh, and that's the critique that Cybersyn received from a lot of Chile and leftists at the time. Because if you think about it, 
at some point in the 1972-73, there was almost no meat being sold in markets. You know, people were eating horses. And here these people are building this fancy room with fancy displays and chairs and all this fancy equipment when the country is literally falling apart. There are explosions everywhere. Like Allende gives a big TV speech and uh, the TV tower gets blown up by his right-wing opponents. That's the environment of Chile at the time, right? While these people are building a fancy room with screens and chairs, uh, as if it would be there for the next 50 years to manage, like as if they're in Switzerland and Norway, right? I mean, so that's the <laughs> that's the part that I think uh, it's, it's easy to miss, right? Because we we also that's why it's so important to get to the historical context of what was actually happening in Chile outside of that room in 1972 and 1973, because if you look at the room itself, you might think, oh, everything was going smoothly. And then on September 11th, 1973, a coup occurred. But essentially, it's a coup. You know, the best book about the coup, I have it here, by a Chilean journalist called Monica Gonzalez. You know, it's called uh, 1001 Days of the Coup. Right. So, I mean, the coup really lasted three years. Right? It starts almost before Yende gets into power. Uh, and it's against that uh, reading of the coup that you need to interpret Cybersyn and not against the reading that, you know, everything was going smoothly. And then they had this transportation strike and then they had the coup. Right? I think that's not the right interpretation. Five, 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 I want to end things off. I mean, we've been going for, for a long time. We could be going for so much longer, but for Ed's sake, because Ed is the one really taking a bullet here by staying awake at, uh, what is it now, 4 a.m. for you, Ed? So, <laughs> um, so for Ed's sake, uh, I do want to end, I think, on one last question, which is really a kind of nice way to uh, uh, wrap up some of the uh, things that you were just discussing. And, of course, before that, I should, you know, assure people you have to go listen to the Santiago boys. I mean, even though we've been talking for two hours, um, this is not a placeholder or a, uh, a replacement for listening to the full nine part series, which is all of what we've been talking about. And so, 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 so much more. Um, and, and, but on that, then on, on this show, you know, we always kind of catch ourselves whenever we're, we're, doing analysis when we're talking about what's going on, right? We always try to catch ourselves into not falling into the kind of doomerist uh, mindset as well, even though, you know, as you talk about, I mean, you know, it's what you were saying is like that naivete, but, you know, if you kind of rip off the rose colored glasses and have a little bit of that, like, you know, the, the sober analysis, the, the forces uh, that we're up against are, are, uh, absurd and, and monumental. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, we were talking about ITT and then you mentioned Bechtel and that just opens up like a whole new level, right? Like for people listening, if you, you know, think about Halliburton, but, but like a leveled up version and an older version of Halliburton. And it's like, you've never even heard of Bechtel and yet they are this like extremely powerful, um, and wealthy corporate arm of American imperialism. And so how then, 
what what do you think how do you combine at once the 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 necessity to maybe even need that naivete that people like Beer and Flores and Allende had um, to pursue something like um, as radical as Project Cybersyn without, you know, stopping themselves before they even got started because they were like, well, how can we stand up against um, all of these forces uh, levied against us? How do you combine something like that with the uh the 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 kind of necessary analysis that is informing the the podcast is informing what you think we need to know about and think about today so how do you at once you know look into the abyss but not uh fall into it in other words Sure. Well, I guess Gramsci had figured it out before us with the pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will quote. So, I mean, the optimism, we know where it comes from. I mean, it's really how to develop the robust pessimism. Um, and I think here... It's really, I mean, so what Stafford Beer tried to do in Chile, I think was correct. I mean, the guy was really thinking in models. He was really about building complex models of the world and then adjusting them based on um, data, right? So he would really try to, if you look at his later work, after Chile, he would really build these complex models accounting for media and capitalism and the army and the military. So that was fine. I mean, that's how you do. You need to have a model of reality, right? If you want to act in it. And uh, the problem is that a lot of them neglected certain parts of the system when doing the modeling, or like Beard, they didn't have the necessary geopolitical and political grounding to even understand that they need to be mapped. Right? And that's something that comes with political formation, with education, with consciousness. It comes with, you know, certain, that's what political parties used to do, right, In, of, of the left. They used to have party schools and you would go there and, I mean, okay, there would be a very ideological uh, presentation of everything, but they would give you a picture of the world and they will, I mean, and, and to some extent in Chile, some parties did that, right? So the Communist Party, which was the most reasonable party in the whole coalition, they, they were really the most disciplined apparatus you can imagine. They did that, but I think they also had the blind spots, right? So the question then becomes, how do you build a model that allows you to integrate um, uh, all these disparate developments and that you can keep constantly updated? So in a sense, without fully understanding it, Beer was this idea of building an operations room, you know, forget about the, the, the chairs and, you know, and, and then the, the design elements, but the idea that you need to have a war room because there is a war going on against you, uh, it was the correct idea, right? Whether they had the capacity to do it uh, in a way to win the war is what I find a little bit uh, harder to answer because clearly they built a war room, but there was a war room that assumed that the war can be won if you just focus on the war for production, if you just focus on the kind of, you know, on the battlefield of the economy. But the attacks were happening, you know, there were political attacks, there were geopolitical attacks of the CIA. They needed to have a war room like this for the whole country operational for three or four years where you can think ahead, but you can also map out your enemies, right? So in a sense, the Berian system uh, uh, 
could have been integrated and should have been integrated probably at all the levels of the Chilean society to be truly functional. The problem in Chile is that, um, and that's what most people don't realize, is that it was really a project. I even represented a project supported by one third of the country. It wasn't a one half of the country. It was really one third of the country. You had, and it, you know, the forces were kind of split one third, one third, one third. You had the left, the Christian Democrats, and you had the right wing. And the problem is that once you just have 30% and you don't manage to convert at least the other third from the Christian Democrats to your uh, to a project, you cannot possibly not face resistance from the institutions that are occupied by the other people, by the other forces, right? So imagine if they were really to build a cyber scene for the whole country beyond production, integrating, you know, police stations, integrating the army and integrating everybody else. I mean, as a theoretical exercise, it sounds great. And yes, that's how you win the battle for Chile. If you think that there is Chile and then it's opposed by the United States. The problem is that Allende was opposed by two thirds of his country, <laughs> right? And many of them in the army and in the police forces and elsewhere. So it, the idea that you could just go and build this room and suddenly you're going to find consensus among the Chilean population and everybody will just uh, come and watch the screens and understand where the attacks are coming from, it's also very naive because you cannot uh, solve these problems of political strategy and tactics by relying and delegating them to tools, no matter how fancy and how cybernetic. Right? So in a sense, I think, uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not offering a very like coherent and uh, sharp answer to a question, but you cannot, you cannot kind of solve this problem without developing an extremely political and politically sensitive reading of the situation around you. Because if you don't, then the temptation, the scientific technocratic temptation to just delegate it all to the tools and then just to delegate this problem solving to some kind of cognitive mapping system that will rely on big data to map out the state of the economy and of the world, it will just crush you. <laughs> Uh, and so ultimately, you, you only get there by, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say that it sounds very banal, but you, you get there through politics and you get there by developing a robust political apparatus with, you know, debates, but also potentially with people who perhaps are more jaded and, 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 and that they know, I mean, and, you know, being in Latin America, knowing the history of coups in Latin America, knowing that army has traditionally, you know, Chile was the only country that for 30 years didn't have, or 40 years did not have a coup, but most of the other countries did. I mean, coming from that context, like your first, and Allende was convinced that the military would respect the constitution, right? And, uh, you can't like knowing history and knowing politics and knowing geopolitics and knowing something about the CIA and you know, something about ITT. If only they had learned enough, and only if they were a little bit less provincial in their outlook, they may have taken steps and measures to at least last a little bit longer. And ultimately, they did not. And uh, I think that's the lesson that the left um, 
try to learn and um, some of them learned very different lessons from it i mean you can you can talk about the lessons that the french and uh, italian socialist and communist parties learned from chile and it was not about becoming more political it was ultimately about becoming more mainstream and making sure that uh, they're not seen as this radical followers of Allende and they were instead the good social democrats uh, so they essentially became mainstream so there are all sorts of lessons that were learned and mislearned from the Chilean experience, experience. And that is why it is such a fascinating story to tell. And I think you tell it in a really fascinating way. Um, I mean, Yevgeny, it's always a, a joy to, to, to talk to you, always a joy to um, read and now listen to your work. Um, and and I'm, uh, I, I know I speak for everyone. I'm very excited to see a lot more of it coming out after a, after a longer silence. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. That's for a good reason. It was for a good cause. <laughs> it was it was for a good reason and a good cause, absolutely, and good results as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, everybody, of course, go listen to the Santiago Boys, um, a nine-part podcast series um, available, I'm sure, wherever you find good podcasts um, and the uh, the website for the podcast as well. For I mean, just all of that, just absolutely massive amount of like parallel text um, and hypertext uh, that is. Is a part of the the research and the stories and the tangents and everything that went into the podcast. So, with that, Yevgeny, is there anything else you want to plug? Maybe tease? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you, you you've already teased a lot in terms of things that you've got coming up, um, and you, you seem to be a man that is working on and has been working on uh, multiple very large projects at once at the same time. So, um, but but any, anything you want to uh, uh, plug or direct people's attention to? No, no, I'm good. I think there is this. Uh track that you promised to insert in the soundtrack i'm not sure that you you would do or not i think that would be a very nice uh kind of parting uh soundtrack to our story so this uh, fella kuti that you know of course is a very famous musician from nigeria he uh had his own beef with itt so he recorded this very provocative track called international thief thief which of course added up to itt which well i mean it's not I'm, I'm, like i don't have to plug fella kuti on a podcast but uh, I mean, ultimately, I think I'd better be plugging him as a kind of a fighter against uh, Big Tech uh, than uh, doing anything else. So go listen to it. You'll find it on YouTube. Yeah, and we'll have a link to that. And the episode is going to roll out into that track showing that um, the fight against ITT extended not just across Latin America, but all the way to Nigerian Afrobeat music. So um, with that, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, and you can, of course, always find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills for additional episodes every single week. Uh, and until next time. Later. Adios. International International International
Yo, 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 yo,